This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Zoe Barnard, Senior Advisor at Manat Health. Zoe, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Laura. Now, I know we've got a lot to talk about. So much is happening in healthcare right now. But before I dive into my questions, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Yes, I'd be happy to. My, uh, my professional career has mostly been as a government employee, including as a regulator, and most of it has been spent in behavioral health in one way or another. So in my 20s, I started out working in residential treatment, and then I worked in group homes with children who were juvenile justice and foster care involved. I spent 10 years with the state of Montana in Medicaid in behavioral health. And about half of that time, I worked in children's services. And when I left the state, I worked with adults and with substance use disorder, overseeing all of the publicly funded behavioral health programs in the state, including Medicaid programs. I spent a lot of my last five years working on Montana Medicaid's behavioral health continuum of care. As you're probably aware, Medicaid expansion has made huge impacts on mental health and even more so on substance use disorder treatment services for adults. Um, I also oversaw the state's opioid response and was able to help launch an increased focus on crisis services. After I left employment with the state of Montana, I was briefly with the Healthcare Services Corporation. Healthcare Service Corporation is the country's largest customer-owned health insurer and there are nearly 16 million members in its five health plans in Illinois, Montana, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas. I worked specifically with leadership in Blue Cross Blue Shield, Montana to understand opportunities and challenges for the Montana plan. I just started working for Manat Health Strategies, and um, Manat Health Strategies is a leader in the healthcare consulting world, specifically in terms of specialty interdisciplinary knowledge, working with government entities and foundations. Manat is made up of a team of more than 160 healthcare professionals and includes many specialties like MBAs and financial experts, as well as people like me, former government officials. Manat partners with a wide range of stakeholders, including state and federal policymakers and agencies, payers, healthcare providers and systems, foundations, and many more. So I joined Manat because it's very fast-paced and mission-driven. I see a huge need from our clients right now for assistance with behavioral health programs and services. And this will likely continue as our nation has really woken up to the importance of mental wellness and resiliency during the pandemic. Working with clients across the nation as we move behavioral health practice forward is so exciting for me. I identify as a Westerner, a Montanan, a mom, um, and I'm also a child of two people who worked for the government. So I grew up in that kind of environment. Absolutely. Wow. So it sounds like you've had such an interesting career journey um, from your early days working in behavioral health to then, um, you know, BCBS of Montana and now Manat. When you look at kind of your upbringing, how did that really prepare you to do what you're doing today? And where did you really find that spark for behavioral health and health policy? Well, I always wanted to do something that would be of benefit to society and to people. And when I went and worked in residential treatment, and I was so 
taken with the idea that true change comes from within the individual, and that pushed me in the direction of mental health services. And the rest of it, I think, was just pure dumb luck, Laura. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And really having that nugget of inspiration of wanting to work with people and make a difference, um, you know, in large scale, um, you know, it's good to, to have the luck to then be able to realize those um, dreams and aspirations. So I know, you know, all of this has been kind of brought to the forefront during the pandemic and really so much of the nation has turned their attention to behavioral health and mental health and, and just really healthcare in general and making sure that people have access and, and really trying to troubleshoot some of the challenges that um, keep people from accessing healthcare. So when you look at where you're at today, what are the big trends you're following most closely and what do you think is really poised to make an impact going forward? So you brought forward the obvious thing that COVID has really brought behavioral healthcare and telehealth right to the forefront nationally. Um, but I think one of the most positive impacts of the public health epidemic is that we have busted through some of the stigma related to behavioral health care. And I think how we know that that has happened is that suddenly everyone is willing and able to talk about it. So, of course, this comes with some costs. Um, and we hear a lot about the behavioral health workforce that is too small to respond to the demand. And unfortunately, we have a burned out healthcare workforce, including behavioral health workforce. But it's also a real opportunity to rise to the challenge and recognize the importance of mental health and resiliency to overall health. So I think that we can realize the dream of integrated healthcare over the next decade because understanding that mental health is wellness is no longer something that is being screamed from the sidelines. And um, as you're probably aware, the Surgeon General of the U.S. in December released an advisory report on the current state of youth mental well-being. Uh, this publication followed the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the American Academy of Pediatrics issuing warnings about worsening mental health. Um, in my home state, before the advisory report, there was an article in the Washington Post actually about little tiny Montana, about the state of adolescent mental health in the Northwest corner of our state where there's been a lot of social and political conflict. And one of the big recommendations in the Surgeon General's report was for parents to model taking care of their own emotional health. So as I've been watching this all unfold, Laura, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about the current state of affairs culturally, and I've been hearing a lot that we're in a state of nihilism post-pandemic, but I just keep going back to seeing where we are as a huge opportunity. Rather than um, being discouraged about the crisis in behavioral health, I choose to think of this as a watershed moment in our country and we can choose to move through this time as a society by really valuing mental wellness and resilience and teaching those skills to our kids. I think we can build a stronger workforce by valuing our behavioral health care workers in a variety of ways. So I would say that's the first like huge trend. Um, but secondarily, I'm incredibly interested in developments in our mental health crisis system. So the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors um, and others through the Crisis Now movement is really changing how public and private payers think about behavioral health. And this is super important. Um, I come from a state with a significant suicide problem. 
Montana has the dubious distinction of being in the top five states for suicide completions for over a decade. And um, in the U.S., somebody with a mental health emergency has generally two options. The first is that law enforcement responds. And law enforcement response is built on good intentions, but it effectively it criminalizes a mental health crisis, it can result in incarceration, it often results in involuntary hospitalization. I personally know a lot of wonderful, caring police officers, but I think asking them to intervene in a mental health crisis is not the best use of their skills. In states like Montana, where we have a lot of land mass and not many people, it also takes officers out of the communities and puts them on the road. And we would be better suited by having those officers in the community. Um, secondarily, people can go to the emergency room. And traditionally, emergency departments haven't really deployed mental health professionals, which is something I think is important to figure out as well. Um, the ER might be appropriate sometimes, but going to the ER often results in unnecessary hospitalization. So Crisis Now envisions a totally different world of crisis response. And um, it has four basic principles, um, call centers, mobile crisis response teams, number three, crisis receiving facilities, and number four, best practices to wrap around that. So in the Crisis Now model, a mobile crisis team becomes the first responder. So in July of 2022, three months from now, 988 goes online. And 988 is the mental health emergency number for the entire nation. And states are working now to integrate 988 within their existing call centers so that mobile crisis teams can be dispatched quickly. Crisis Now has been discussed a lot if you work in the Medicaid world or the publicly funded behavioral health world, but there's a huge potential for it to impact private payers. Unnecessary emergency department visits are a gigantic cost to all payers, and behavioral health hospitalization is extremely costly. And if the system transformation is done well, there will be, I think, a lot of pressure from the privately insured to have access to the new crisis system. So I think it'll be interesting to see who leads practice in the private payer world by paying for community crisis care. And then I would say the third trend that is worth discussing today, just briefly, is increased telehealth. Um, you know, right before the pandemic, um, we had tried everything in Montana to get telehealth up and running and really working um, because we have such a low population density. And in fact, I had been on the phone with a researcher from NIMH um, who was going to try to figure this out. Why, why couldn't we get acceptance of it? And then the pandemic happened, and suddenly everybody is an expert in telehealth. But what I'm worried about now, coming from a frontier state, is access. Um, broadband access across the nation is spotty. And um, there's a lot of federal money for states to invest in broadband through ARPA, but there's also been opportunities for broadband in the past. And um, oftentimes the places that really need broadband don't get it. So I'm thinking about rural and frontier areas, um, places where there's a lot of agriculture, places where the suicide rate is high, 
where access to mental health services falls short of what it should be. Also in Montana, um, tribal lands don't have good broadband access. Basically, the healthcare professional shortage areas, when you look on a map, are places where broadband access is generally speaking inadequate. So I hope to see leadership in states that need broadband access to provide it. And that really ties back into what I said about people recognizing that getting help for their mental health is important. We need to give them a way to do it. And the infrastructure is a huge piece. Absolutely. I, I think you've covered a lot of ground there, Zoe, and a lot of important things, you know, in, in thinking about um, how we are busting the stigma for um, behavioral health and some of the different aspects of how crisis teams can really respond differently to make a big difference in how communities care for people with behavioral health and, um, you know, really have that as being a big part of how communities are responding in what really healthcare, their role is for healthcare and behavioral health issues. And then telehealth as well. I know it's something that um, really is on the tip of so many people's tongues and trying to figure out how to get the funding and set up the infrastructure for that broadband access in um, places where it currently does not cover is so, so important in many ways. So I'm wondering, you know, in thinking about everything we just mentioned, what has the pandemic changed about the relationships between, you know, how um, hospitals, patients, and insurance companies are, are really um, coming together? How is their relationship changing, and what do you see ahead? Well, you know, it's been reported broadly that post-pandemic, there are fewer providers that are not attached to big systems, and that there are just, in general, are more big systems than we've had in the past. Um, and Private payers want to see value-based care, and they want to see integrated behavioral health come to fruition. And I think working with big systems actually provides an opportunity here because we're not trying to move the deck chairs on the Titanic. So when you have big systems that are well-organized, these are systems that can affect real change. And um, I hope that we begin to see that. You know, Laura, we've been talking about IBH and value-based care for a really long time. Um, COVID interrupted the work on that to a certain degree. Um, and it's time for to, us to pick those things back up and run with them. Um, with integrated behavioral health, I hope to see hospital systems rise to the challenge and integrate care in every department. Just because crisis now is evolving doesn't mean that behavioral health challenges will stop at the door of emergency departments or not come to emergency departments. And not every behavioral health emergency is immediately identified as a behavioral health emergency. This is something that I did not understand until I was overseeing payment. But I know from looking at claims data that Behavioral health emergencies often masquerade as physical health issues, and also things like poisonings and car accidents can often have a behavioral health component. So emergency departments could really improve care through carefully thought out screening and referral pathways and follow up. Um, we know that following up post episode with someone who is suicidal dramatically decreases the likelihood of death by suicide. Um, in, in the outpatient primary care space, there was what I see as a landmark study published in 2015 using National Institutes of Mental Health data. 
Um, the researchers identified over 22,000 people who had made suicide attempts in, um, in a three-year period. And they analyzed healthcare visits before the attempt with an eye on the possibilities for identifying people at risk. What is just shocking to come out of this study is that 38% of the patients made some kind of healthcare visit within a week before attempting suicide. And 64% of patients did so within a month. So what we see is that people are reaching out for help when they are suicidal, but they may not initially present as suicidal. And substance use disorder and suicide completion are very closely tied for a number of reasons. And the percentage of visits in that study with mental health or substance abuse diagnoses was about 25% within a week, 44% within a month, and 73% within a year. So basically what this tells us is it tells us that people do seek help, um, but they may not present with what is going on beneath the surface. And they also tell us that a person presenting with primary medical issues might be considering suicide and that primary care docs need to be thinking about that. So in terms of integrated behavioral health and screening, we've seen a significant increase in hospital and primary care-based screening over the past decade, but I think there's a lot of work to do in getting mental health care to be synonymous with primary health care. It's still considered an add-on. Um, and we need to move in the direction of thinking that healthcare is healthcare whether it's for your heart or your head. And there's a lot of work to do with hospitals for developing care pathways and inclusion of behavioral health professionals and care coordinators in those pathways. I think what you're gonna see with private payers is a contractual requirement for data, screening data, referral data, initiation of treatment data. And that's consistent with health insurance accreditation requirements. And where you'll see that come is in value-based care arrangements, where part of the arrangement is data delivery from the health system to the insurer. Um, and um, it's gonna be specifically on those behavioral health variables, screening, referral, initiation of treatment, and follow-up after discharge. Got it. I, I think that's really interesting to think about in terms of integrating the behavioral health component into the overall healthcare and physical healthcare assessments as well um, for the clinicians and especially those in emergency rooms and in situations. So when you look at the value-based care, as you were just mentioning, how do you see that um, integration going? You know, I, I think in terms of process, having to reconfigure how clinicians approach patients and really think about um, you know, what's being presented to them is one component of it. But then the other component when looking at um, potential payment and reimbursement and understanding, you know, what really um, there are risk for when healthcare providers are adding this into, you know, the overall value-based proposition that they're already taking on and kind of dipping their toes into for most organizations at this point. Um, what do they really need to know to make sure that they're prepared for this reality and in future when behavioral health becomes a larger part of the more integrated health system? So, Laura, I think one of the things that we're really just going to see is I think we're going to see a change in um, payment models. Um, I think we're going to see more episodes of care. Um, 
Medicare has led the way on this, but there are signs that the rest of the health system is really thinking about moving that way. And in behavioral health, an episode of care makes a ton of sense. Um, and that's basically because um, what we've learned about recovery from a substance use disorder or a mental illness is that it's not an end point, right? We used to think like you would enter recovery and that was like the end goal and, um, and then treatment was over. And, and what we've really learned from the people who study brain science um, and those who apply cognitive behavioral therapy. So in other words, relearning thought patterns, um, they, they tell us we need to think of it as a process of back and forth. Um, and we also know that collaborative team-based care is the most effective method of treating most mental illnesses. So if you think about it that way, paying for all the components of care is kind of archaic. So if recovery is a process, we can define a period of time or a period of acuity that a person needs care for a behavioral health problem, and then we can pay for that care, which I am making it far more simple um, than it actually is in practice, because in practice, it's incredibly difficult. And if it wasn't incredibly difficult, we would have figured it out already. Um, You've got multiple providers. You might have multiple systems. You definitely have multiple settings um, and you have varying needs. But I think ultimately, if we can figure out how to align all of that under one episode, it's really gonna help the person being cared for because they're not jumping from care team to care team and it will provide continuity. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, a hope out there, and I don't think it's an unreasonable hope, um, that insurance companies, as well as publicly funded um, programs, hope it's going to also save money because um, that continuity of care is so key to maintaining people at the appropriate level of care. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, um, that is such a, an important part and thing to remember. Zoe, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Likewise, Laura, this was great. Thank you for the opportunity.